0: Well, hello, everybody. This is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 220. Thanks so much for joining me. Carrie Scheipers is here. She'll be with us about five minutes before we begin. I should say that Rattle is a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. We've been a continuous publication since 1995 and are unaffiliated with any other organization. We just do all this because we love poetry, and I know you do too. So please do click the like button and share, subscribe, ring the bell, leave reviews, wherever you're listening to this live or later. Uh, there's something you can do to help spread poetry around, make our rankings rise, get more of this out there into the world, and it's a world that needs it. So please do help share as much as you can. Um, now, as all we always do, we're gonna go talking first to our Sunday Poetry Respond poet, and for the second time this year, um, we have. Francesca Moroni. Hey, Francesca, Uh, how are you doing?
1: Hi, Tim. I'm well. And you, thank you for having me.
0: I'm great. Yeah, thanks so much for being here again. Um, You know, it's just a a beautiful poem. Do you want to explain how the poem came to be and, um, and, you know, what inspired it?
1: Sure. Well, I've been spending a lot of time in the trees this fall and um, read about Kenya's effort. This is the article that had. It sort of spurred me to this, planting all these trees. And I was really struck by the beauty of such a huge act, 100 million trees, and also this idea that we're only planting those trees because we've already lost so much. And so I was just sort of sitting with this idea of replacing how we can never really replace what's been lost, but that loss and grief are also always about love and desire for something more. Mm-hmm. And I wound up with this poem.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a beautiful poem, and as so many you know poems do, it went from a you know political you know news story to a really personal place. Um, a poem that's both sexy and sad, which is a combination that doesn't happen very often. It's hard to put all that <laughs> in a poem. Well, the whole thing is also an extended metaphor too, so it's a great poem. Do uh, so you want to go ahead and read it?
1: Yeah, please. Thank you. In today's fantasy, trees, poems, and sex. Before you died, you promised me a book of poetry. It was the day we planted the maple. We sprawled in the dirt beside our newest sapling. You asked what I wanted for my birthday. A pair of woolly socks, vial of sandalwood oil, tube of rose scented cream. I watched you smile, waiting for me to decide. On the street, over your left shoulder, Passing cars, a dog and its human, pollen painting everything green. Perhaps some sonnets. I grew warm, anticipating thinly veiled eroticism oozing from each sestet. Oh, free verse, I declared, excited now, wanting poems a bit subversive, poems as unafraid as you and I, poems loud enough to declare our most basic desires. Fuck, come on your knees. What is it that I miss the most? The feel of your mouth moving over me while I read Neruda to you beneath the duvet or the way we loved to lie beneath the trees. In today's fantasy, you have lived long enough for us to lounge again in the yard. You teach me Cornus Florida and Aeschylus Pavia. We have already identified Acer Palmatum, with leaves so red, I sometimes tremble in the presence of all that heat. In today's fantasy, we unwrap the book you have given me, and then we take the poems to bed. We tear them with our teeth, we suck each stanza and Zora until the poems glow rich and red, as fierce and fiery as the bloom of Japanese maple. In today's fantasy, you and I are the leaves blazing through this late autumnal light moments before we fall.
0: Yeah, Thanks so much for sharing that Francesca and again that was for Francesca Moroni with a Sunday's poem In Today's Fantasy, Trees, Poems and Sex and in a poem that really relates a lot to Griefland um, the main book that we're going to be talking about today with Carrie Scheipers and I had no idea because um, I read Griefland you know, Sunday after picking this poem on Saturday so it was an interesting thing to see um, You know, something a lot of people go through and really well done um, thanks for sharing this poem it was really touching
1: Thank you Tim, thanks Carrie have a great night
0: too. Thank you, was, Francesca. Uh, that was Francesca Moroni with uh, Sunday's Poet in today's fantasy, trees, poems, and sex. Now we're going to take a quick break and go to our main guest, Carrie Scheiper. So sit tight and I'll be right back with more poetry. back. Like I said, today's guest is Carrie Scheipers. Uh, her poems have appeared in Crab Orchard Review, Hayden's Fair Review, New England Review, Prairie Schooner, a whole bunch of really wonderful magazines, including two issues of Rattle, issue 63 and the most recent this fall. She's the author of a bunch of books, too, Ordinary Mourning, Cause for Concern, Family Resemblances, and the newest one here, Griefland. It's a really powerful book about um, grieving and loss. And um, here she is, Carrie Scheipers. Hey, Carrie, how are you doing today?
2: Hey, Tim. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's really a pleasure to have
0: you. Um, you know, I've, I've been a fan of your work for a long time, and so it's really cool to meet you, like, like uh, you know, just for so many poets to get to put a, a face to the name. Um, and it's interesting, too. We're going to be talking about poets uh, or poems later from the, about corporate culture, which is a fascinating thing, too, mm-hmm. which I always thought of you as that because I've seen a bunch of your poems along that lines, too. But there's a whole wide range of things that you're writing about. Uh, do you want to start reading the first poem from uh, Griefland?
2: Sure. Griefland. On the road to Griefland, you pass other attractions you'd prefer. Zoo, water park, dirt track for monster trucks, haunted asylum on a hill. But it's too late to change your plans. Admission costs more than you thought. Your coupon is expired and no discounts apply. Inside the gates, the landscape you remember has been changed where you expect a carousel, a band shell stocked with elderly trombones, in place of a photo booth, a funhouse full of foggy mirrors. At least the rides are still the same, roller coaster, Ferris wheel, cages that rotate upside down. You start with the one that you like least, barrel that spins, pins you to the wall while the bottom drops away. Despite rust and peeling paint, accidents are rare and so far never fatal you're safe if you stay seated keep hands and feet inside the car obey the teenage operators who make sure your lap bars locked wish you an awesome ride at Griefland, you crave cotton candy funnel cake corn dogs striped with mustard you drip on your shirt your stomach hurts even before the kettle corn nachos Cherry snow cone leaking in the dirt. No matter what the forecast says, damp air forms a sticky film. Umbrellas aren't allowed, so during daily showers, people shelter in the gift shop and arcade. Being near so many bodies crowds your breath, but far off lightning means you're trapped until clouds clear. You don't doubt you deserve a prize from Game Booth's rig to let you win, or that once your arms are tired, The giant blow-up hammer, stuck dog with mournful eyes, won't seem worth keeping. The longer your day at Griefland lasts, the more unease you feel among the smeary clowns, groundskeepers trailing smoke as they sweep up debris. Your feet and knees are sore, but even when you find a place to sit, you can't keep still. You need one more thing to make your trip complete, and only walking will remind you what it is. Rising darkness amplifies music from the riots, songs you heard once at a high school dance or college party this morning in the car. You watch packs of people rushing toward their fun, their smiles forced and laughter frantic, and decide you're not like them at all. When you're ready to leave, it's hard to find your way. Twice, you try to follow exit signs and wind up deeper in the park. You consider climbing the fence fronting the road, then see its row of barbs. Frustration makes your headache worse, as does the whine and blare of the PA, parties anxious to meet at the grandstand or fountain. After a long search for your car, which is much farther from the gates than you remember, you drive home bleary-eyed and hunched over the wheel. Your visit wasn't quite what you'd been hoping, but you know it's pointless to complain. Swear you won't go back. Griefland may not be your favorite place, but no one stays away for good.
0: Yeah, it's a great metaphor and powerful poem, Griefland. Uh, the title poem from the book by Carrie Scheiper's Griefland. And, um, you know, as we've already seen on the Rattlecast, you know, Griefland is a place that so many people end up um, going to. It's, it's something, um, it's a great metaphor for it, but but it's a destination that we all um you know, have in our lives at some point and have to deal with. And it's one of the things that poetry does is is serve as a guide to those difficult times where um, we have to go to places like that. Can you share a little bit about the story of um, what happened, um, you know, when your husband passed away um, and, and how that came to be and, and how this book came to be?
2: It actually it started before my husband's death. Um, I moved to Rhode Island in June of 2016 and was so disoriented. I'd never lived on the East Coast before. I had no idea what I was doing. Just going to the grocery store was like an all-day event. Um, I couldn't kind of get my bearings very well. And I, my husband and I were both kind of still in that stage when my, um, I get a phone call in the middle of the night in August, and my father was dying, mm-hmm. and he had not been ill as far as I knew, like he was a very healthy person. Um, and that was not true. So I had to fly home immediately. And I think from then until my husband died, I never knew where I was. Hmm. I All I could do, I think, was try to write things down to keep track of them. Um, and so little bits of things would come to me. I started grief right after my dad died, just trying to write, like I needed a metaphor mm-hmm. because real life didn't make sense. And I'm a writer and I kept thinking if I can get this on the page somehow, that will help. Um, and I did that for a long time, um, as my losses piled up.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And then, um, and so how long after that did, did your husband die? 10 weeks. Oh, wow. Yeah. And it was, it was sudden, like, like what, what happened?
2: Um, It was actually quite, um, well, I won't say quite drawn out. People obviously go through all kinds of terrible things. Um, He didn't feel well when we moved here and he kept, you know, he'd feel better than worse than better than worse. Mm -hmm. Um, And so he was in and out of the hospital a few times and it always seemed um, like fixable problems, right? He had his gallbladder out at one point and it seemed like that would, Um, take care of the problem and it didn't. And he was back in the hospital and that was about six weeks Mm -hmm. that he was just in and out of the hospital. And then um, he um, went into coronary arrest and they revived him, but um, he was never awake again. So eventually I had to make the decision to disconnect his life support. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. it's such a, such a, amazingly difficult thing to to have to go through and then um yeah and and it you know it seems you know that that amount of time seems really sudden too like something they wouldn't be prepared for and so you know the the shock of that must um make it even more difficult
2: it did and i grew up around hospitals i am weirdly comfortable in hospitals i speak the same language um i usually have a pretty good handle on what's going on um, but it just, it took so much energy every day to just get through that day. Mm-hmm. Um, that I think I was stunned and recovering for a very long time afterward.
0: Yeah. Um, so uh, Paul mitchell Bernstein already asked, and I wanted to ask this too. So maybe now's a good time, but how did you come, uh, with the inspiration of, of the theme park, um, is, is the central metaphor that sort of, you know, become the title of this book?
2: I don't really remember. I think part of it was just, and I I haven't been to a lot of theme parks, honestly, Um, but the way that they're fun, but they're also scary in a really controlled way, right? And so you can get the thrill of a roller coaster. Your death is very unlikely. Um, And also that feeling that I've had lots of times in my life where you're a little kid at the fair and you've just had too much day. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah.
3: There's
2: no there's no thrill left. There's no you know, there's no treat left that's going to thrill you. There's no more exciting thing you can see. You just need to go home. Mm -hmm. So I think it was a combination of those things, right? That world where everything is just like maybe slightly off Mm -hmm. um, and the feeling of wanting desperately to get out of a place that you've been told is fun
0: yeah. Yeah. I mean, like the exhaustion at the end of the day and, and, you know, as a kid too, like you're, you can't go home until your parents say so, right. <laughs> too, you and know, you and you so kind of dragging around trying to get, trying to get their need. money's worth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, let's hear another poem uh, from the book. I think the next one up is the next poem, um, letter to the small Thanks. or from the smallest state.
2: Yeah. Um, and so this is, there are a lot of letter poems in this book, but, um, I wrote this one particularly thinking of my dad, which I think comes through at the end. Letter from the small estate. One morning, just after I arrived, a man walked past my building singing Springsteen, then yelled fuck over and over. By the time I got up to look, he disappeared or at least gone silent. Everywhere I walk my dog, we find chicken bones and coins, mostly pennies, but sometimes dimes and quarters. Also playing cards, which raises questions, why people have so many decks, why they wear out so fast. I don't like donuts very much, but I can always find a Dunkin' when I need to turn around. Because I'm still afraid to drive downtown, I get my hair cut and teeth cleaned in a suburb that starts a few streets over. At first, I resisted the Rhode Island left, but I've come to appreciate how practical it is. I love how people pronounce car, coffee, and my first name. They seem to say whatever's on their mind, often loudly and in public places. At the DMV, I be promoting my shit. The library, I take the bus because I don't have time. The bank, my son's a friggin' leech. At the park, grown men play baseball in full uniform in front of signs that say police take notice, which is either a threat or a request. Hundreds of bottle caps, mostly Corona light, shine in dirt that's more like sand. In summer, the forecast on the local news includes tides, wave heights, and safe sun time. Even the grocery stores are different. I can't buy alcohol or mail my packages. Goya gets most of one entire aisle, pasta and sauce another. So many kinds, I'll never try them all. Six weeks after I moved, my father died. He was never going to visit because he didn't fly, but he said I should live where I was happy. I don't always remember that he's dead. I catch myself eyeing lottery machines for tickets I could send, practicing stories about traffic. Sometimes I pretend the coins I pick up are from him, but I was finding change before he died.
0: And that was um, that was letter from the small estate from Griefland, And it's one of many, as you mentioned, uh, letter poems in the book. And, and it's one of the things I always talk um, about on our critique show that we do on Fridays is that uh, one of the ways to get a really strong voice and like that, that concept of voice is to feel like you're actually writing to somebody, you know? And, and there's that sense of like, you know, you can abstract and, and not have a connection, um, unless you have a sort of an ID in your mind, even though if it's not, even if it's not, um, you know explicit your mind that you're actually talking to someone that the poem is a conversation directed at something and i think these poems really show um how well that works because they're they're poems of course to to writers um, and people who've gone through, you know, to Griefland as is, is the metaphor, but people whose stories you've read and, and synthesized and wanted to reply to. And, and there's a real inti- intimacy to that, to connecting through poetry in a letter form to somebody. Can you talk a little bit about how you came to write those types of poems?
2: I think I've written some letter poems in the past. But there was something about when I was trying to write this book, which I didn't know was going to be a book and actually kept telling people it wasn't and people just were like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it ignored me, which is fair. Um, I, I think it was partly that struggle to connect and to want there were things that I was trying to figure out that I could only figure out if I tried to explain them to someone else. But there were so few people in my life who knew what I was talking about. And people tried very hard to listen, they were very kind. But I think part of why so many of the poems in this collection are letters to other writers is because I was reading these grief memoirs and I felt like, oh, I'll tell Mark Doty, right? He'll understand, I'll tell Joan Didion. Um, And so that was really important. And then some of them are letters to people in my life. you know, who either weren't there to hear me or I couldn't articulate out loud the things that I wanted to say, Mm -hmm. but I could write them down.
0: Yeah. Um, Have you gotten any responses from any of the uh, authors that you've written poems about? Because I know, you know, they'll, yeah, I mean, Mark Doty, I'm sure he'd, you know, be interested to read it. Have you sent it, sent the book to him or anything like that?
2: No, I haven't. It would, it would be, I think, an interesting thing to do, but no, I haven't.
0: Yeah. Um, well, it is interesting. I mean, because you know, poetry is a is a grand dialogue of what it is to be human. You know, and and having that interactive participation is what what brings poems to life. And so, having that too, both on the level of finding your voice, um, but also just participating in a dialogue. I mean, this is a this is a book that adds to the the big dialogue about grief that that so many people have written about, whether it's Mark Doty and his dog or Joan Didion, um, and you know, and all the things that people have gone through. Um, so. Um, maybe we should read another poem too. Do you want to read the next one?
4: Sure. Okay. Okay.
2: Um, this poem has a title that reads into the first line. My dead husband never wore a watch or was ready to leave on time. He thought I should wash my car more often, hated cell phones except when he borrowed mine. Even with the window open, his showers built up so much steam, the smoke detector chirped. He needed more sleep than me, ate food I wouldn't touch. White bread, bologna, frozen pizzas, tasting of cardboard. Although his size could make him seem intimidating, he made friends everywhere because he was so kind. He loved that people talk about his jokes, how warm his smile was. He wouldn't want me to point out that sometimes he was lonely too, loaded down with worries he only told to me. My dead husband had amazing legs. He was great at wheel of fortune, math, and understanding puns on license plates. He never put the scissors back where they belonged. He left the lids off condiments, left mud and dirty dishes all over the house. At least twice a week, he lost his keys and temper apologized by being silent until I gave in. Every night, he watched the local news and told me what I'd missed. He also always did the decorating. He didn't have the greatest taste, but it was better than blank walls. He clipped coupons and read the grocery ad, kept a notebook of products I used, tampons, lotion, deodorant, so he'd buy the right brands. When I mentioned my dead husband and the present tense, I make myself go back and clarify. He'd prefer I use a euphemism, late, departed, past, would say it isn't nice to like when people flinch. I'm not as angry as I was right after he died, but I no longer let him vote at family meetings. Sometimes I'm jealous that he'll never have to change, reshape his life all on his own. My dead husband couldn't stand for me to be upset. No matter what the problem was, He'd swear we'd be okay, make jokes to show at least we had each other. I can't imagine what he'd say right now.
0: And that was My Dead Husband from Griefland, a beautiful, powerful book of poems by Carrie Scheipers. And um, you see the cover on the screen if you're watching the video version, and um, it's just a great cover, too. Uh, Carla Schwartz wanted to know uh, where the cover came from and how you found that photo, um, which is just so perfect. And and the, the layout is just great, too. It's a beautiful book.
2: I would love to take credit for it. But it is all um, the work of the book designers at the University of New Mexico press. Um, They sent me a little questionnaire. And I was like, just can it not look like a sympathy card? Mm -hmm. And um, I said, like, maybe something maybe a ride. And they sent this, I I think, right away, this was the first design they sent. And I'm like, yes, that's Mm -hmm. it. That's it. Exactly.
0: Yeah. Yeah, oh, it's just perfect. I, it's great when, you know, that happens and somebody sees the vision and sees your book the right way through the cover. that's was great too. Yeah, and that's the cover of Griefland. Um and you know, Dick Westheimer says, I agree with Carrie about euphemisms. And and the thing, you know, I was thinking about you know, it, it, it's difficult to talk about grief, you know? I mean it's kind of like um, you know, no one knows what to say, I imagine. And um and so it feels like the book Um, is a way to have that dialogue that's maybe missing in culture because we really in our society we don't have a lot of good ways to talk about these things like there's you know it's sort of like a out of sight out of mind type relationship we have with dying Um, so was that one of the motivations of the book too to have to give voice to your thoughts because it was difficult to find people to talk to as I imagine it might be
2: Um, I think that was part of it and Um, you know, I'm blessed in my life to have a lot of great friends, but also, I mean, I was so boring and I could hear it in myself, right? That sometimes I just wanted to say the same things over and over again. And I didn't like hearing myself say those things, but again, you know, to write them down and to, um, kind of obsess over them on the page, which is how I spend a lot of my life anyway, right? writing things down and then thinking about them and then writing them down again. Um that felt more manageable to me. And I had, of course, like control over it because you write a terrible draft and nobody ever has to know, right? Mm -hmm. There aren't any
5: witnesses.
2: (laughs) Um, So I think that was also very freeing. And sometimes I wanted to say things. Um, My husband was a wonderful man. I loved him very much. I did not always want to talk about his sainthood Mm -hmm. Um, because you live with anybody for long enough, they get on your nerves. Um, and I wanted a way to say things like
0: that too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, usually I usually have to ask people, uh, if they have any questions at some point later in the show, but there's been a bunch already. Dick Westheimer asks, um, I know it sounds like a cliche question, but what did Carrie discover as she wrote these wonderful poems? And, and really, what was the, what was it that you learned in the process of writing these about grief? Uh, is there any advice you can pass along or what did you discover?
2: Oh, I didn't, I'm not sure I learned anything about grief. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, I made a study of my grief, but I don't know how helpful that is to anybody else. Um, I feel like of all the reading I did and all the thinking I did, um, not all of which shows up in the book, right? I read a lot of like research studies and really dense texts about grief. And I think I came out of it thinking, I don't know, I think we can try to be together and we can try to listen to each other. Mm -hmm. And beyond that, I don't know that there are that many
0: answers.
2: Yeah. Hmm. which is a horrible thing to say. I know. Um, I wish there were. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, if there were, you know, it wouldn't be such a a difficulty of knowing how to deal with it. You know, it's the one like we're the only creatures in the universe who know how, you know, how things are going to end at all times. You know, we have to deal with that and find a way. And there's no real solution to it. You know, there's no way to make it better. We can try to find all these different ways. But but nothing really does except for, you know, moving on and time passing and it doesn't really heal anything either. So it's, it's a difficult thing. Um, let's see, well, let's, let's read another poem from the book. Okay.
2: Great. This is dear grief, another letter poem, dear grief. I wish you wouldn't text my friends when you've been drinking, call the landlord to complain about the heat, slow drain in the bathroom sink. I don't know why he talks to you. Your name's not on the lease. You make me pay for everything, not just rent and utilities, but takeout you let molder in the fridge, clothes you buy online and claim your gifts, although they're never in my size. You borrow books and drown them in the shower, scratch up my car and fill my bed with bowls of oatmeal you've abandoned, tissues I won't touch. I'm sure you're the reason I feel sick fevers, headaches, swollen joints, and pressure in my chest. I've adapted to the stomach pain, but not the vertigo, how my brain senses subtext even from my friends. When I try to go out for air, an hour on my own, you insist on coming too. Stand so close your shadow swallows mine. Grief, you're the worst roommate I've ever had. I hate the way you hog hot water play awful music on repeat, and set my clocks 10 minutes slow to make me scramble. And I hate the questions and regrets you save for 4 a.m., whispers that keep me wide awake. And yet, no matter how upset with you I get, I admit it hasn't all been terrible. I like it when you sit and listen to my stories, how you don't say I'm making you too sad or try to drag me off the couch. You just ask if I'm warm enough, Hand me the remote and let me pick the shows. Grief, I can't afford for you to stay forever, but you don't have to move out right away.
0: And that was Dear Grief, again, from from Griefland, um, you know, personifying the grief there, you know, in, in addition to a book that gives it a place, too. So it's really a, a way of, you know, giving it a container in both ways, which is fascinating. Yeah. Um Deb T asked the follow-up question. She says, if anything, did you learn anything about yourself writing these poems? So you mentioned that, but what did you learn about, about yourself in the process?
2: Ugh. I'm thinking, well, okay. I don't know that I learned that much about myself that I didn't know. Mm-hmm. I think part of grief for me was that it, it intensified a lot of qualities I already had, not all of which I'm proud of. Um I was furiously angry for quite a while. Um, and I knew I was an angry person, but I didn't know how much anger there was. Um, so there was that. And I'm also somebody like, I'm intensely private. I can be like wildly quiet, which maybe it's hard to believe right now. But, um, and I feel like that some of that intensified as well, right, that it was just, you um, I had to be alone, I couldn't, I couldn't stand noise, um, it was hard to go out sometimes. Um, so I think, um, Philip Lurkin has a quote that says loneliness clarifies, and I don't know if that's true, but I feel like for me, grief intensified a lot of things, um, during the worst of it.
0: Mm-hmm. Um- yeah, you know, Penelope Moffat brings up another point um, that there's a lot of humor in, in some of the lines in the poems, and you know, personifying grief is is funny too, um, and you know, things like that. Um, Penelope asks, um, "Did the poems make yourself laugh? The funny lines, and does that help?"
2: Um, I don't know that they made me laugh. I'd worry. I think if I laughed at my own poems, <laughs> but. I enjoy the fact that they're funny. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was I found there was some freedom in writing Griefland that was new to me at the time. It was different from anything that I had ever written before. And it was there was a lot of relief in saying things, um, like I say in the poem My Dead Husband, for example, and just letting some of that out. Um in kind of a, I mean, eventually a public way, right? It wasn't public when I was writing it. Um, But I thought that was very helpful. And I could say kind of shocking things on the page that maybe I didn't want to say to another person. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, well, that makes a lot of sense, too. Um, Did did you, um, you know, in that regard, do you find, you know, sharing the poems with people who would be surprised at your thoughts? You know, do you find that difficult at all? Like people reading Reading the book or, or giving readings or anything like that?
2: Um, I have so much distance at this point from. I mean, I wrote these poems really intensely the first couple of years after my husband died. And the book came out in the summer of 2020, which was terrible timing, I think, for a book called Griefland. Mm-hmm. I used to joke that it, it made a terrible gift, um, which, you know, I like to think isn't really true, but it felt true for a mm-hmm. while. Um, I don't. Um, I think when I read them, I hope that people understand. Um, And then also, right, I'm like one person talking about what I think. Um, I worried a little bit um, when it first came out and some people that I knew read it. I think that's always a little bit tricky for me, right? There are some friends who maybe recognize themselves in the poems. Um, I think my mother would have recognized herself in some of the poems. How, how much do you
0: feel, you know, do you stay true to the subject matter you're writing about and how much do you let your imagination take you in different places? Like with characters, you know, I mean, some writers think that, you know, things should be all as factual as possible and some think amalgams of different characters together or, or, you know, fair play and things like that. What is your perspective on that?
2: Oh, when I'm writing poems, I don't care about the truth at all. Mm -hmm. Like I did not swear to anybody that I was going to tell any kind of literal truth in my poems. Um, And it's interesting now because there are some things in the book that are not literally true because they didn't fit the line or it was too complicated to try to include the details or like the real narrative, right? Right. Um, And I feel fine about those things. Um, I often, of course, I'm trying to serve um, something that feels true, but I don't limit myself to verifiable facts. And I don't think anybody cares that much. Mm -hmm. Right? Like, I want to serve the poem. I want readers to feel served by the poem. So I can be pretty fast and loose with the truth. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and, you know, as, um, as Monica Dobos says, I think Carrie underestimates how powerful sharing the pain can be. And, you know, I mean, it's really not about any one specific story. It's about this broader truth of of going through life and what we experience and, and, and what matters and, and how to navigate it. And there's so much we can learn from each other's stories if we just listen. And so I think, um, you know, that's a great, a great way to be about it. You know, pursuing the, um, the, the deeper truth beyond the facts is something that I always think is, is more important, too. Um, let's read one last poem um, from Griefland and okay. then uh, maybe talk more broadly after that.
2: Okay. Letters started on my steering wheel. The mechanics I trust most wear flannel shirts that smell of coffee and exhaust. They notice my low mileage how clean my engine is, say they can tell I've taken care. When they offer me options for repair, I try to channel your advice, then spend what it takes to ward off worry. A week after you died, I went to get my car inspected, was told I wouldn't pass until I drove 200 miles. The Atlas in my trunk's a decade out of date, it's pages much too big for this new state, and yet I can't imagine throwing it away. When I confessed that I was moving east, you asked if I'd start talking like the people on the yard, and I said I'd do my best not to. I sound the most Missouri when I'm tired or in pain, and also, if a y'all are fixin' to, will get me what I want. A lot of what you taught me I've lost by not using it. The names of trees and tools and how to win at five-card stud, the best phase of the moon to plant potatoes in, Yet sometimes I'm surprised by my certainty. From the sidewalk, I could tell my neighbor's generator needed new spark plugs, but didn't have the words for how I knew. On the wall beside my desk, a shadow in the paint suggests three quarters of a skull. It reminds me of your gear shift knob and hitch protector, the plastic skeletons you hung in the back window of your truck. The morning of the day you died. Between mom's calls, I searched tickets to Kansas City, sat staring at that skull. By the time she said, come now, I felt like I'd been traveling for hours. I won't call you my compass. It's not your fault how often I get lost. You're my almanac and am station concrete foundation like the ones you built so many of you always said you didn't fly because it was unnatural. But I know you didn't like
0: to ride with anyone you hadn't taught to steer. And that was um, Letter Started on My Steering Wheel, again, from Griefland. And one of the many letter poems in the book, um, did that become a way to generate new um, poetry, too? Like, did you find yourself, once you realized you were writing a lot of letter poems, did that become a kind of prompt that, like, pushed you forward deeper into, you know, your subject matter and what you were, you know, needed to write about?
2: I think that it did, because it was, right, it was working mostly. And so I could think about, okay, this is the book I've read, or this is the thing I'm thinking about, is it a letter? Um, And there are some poems that didn't work as letters, and I had to do another way. Um, But it also, it put pressure, right, like each, when you do a series like that, each new poem puts pressure on all of the other poems, and what I find is a really useful way, because You need to not be saying the same thing over and over again. Mm -hmm. And what I say to Joan Didion needs to be different than what I say to Mark Doty or Sandra Gilbert or whoever. right? And so I think that was useful too, especially as the poems started to accumulate, that it was um, a way forward in terms of making new poems, but it was also a way of looking back at the poems that I'd written Mm -hmm. and thinking about how they could be better.
0: Did you sort of give yourself assignments like, oh, I need to write this letter, you know, I need to write someone to this. Was that the a, a way you progress?
2: Um, uh, not in so organized a fashion. Um, but I think when I'm really deep into something like that, right? That it's like the wheels are always kind of turning. Mm-hmm. Um But then I wanted so much to write one to a poet that I love, and I could not I just could not do it. Um Right. And I drafted it and it was awful. Donald Hall. I wanted to write Donald Hall a letter. Right. Mm-hmm. Because of his poems to Jane.
0: Yeah. But it didn't I work. Didn't yeah. Hmm. Why do you think that is? Why? Uh, why was that harder?
2: I don't know. It was toward the end. And I don't know if I was just out of steam, maybe, or out of things to say. Um, I don't know. It just mm. never works. They don't they don't all make it right. Yeah. They just they can't all.
0: Yeah. Yeah they definitely yeah it's it's not sort of what your subconscious wants to write about more than what you want to you know and so sometimes there's something to say and there's sometimes maybe there's not something articulate there yeah. um, so let's talk about your your um, progression as a poet you know through time uh, is it something that you always wanted to be a poet and what was your development like is is it stretched back to to childhood like it does for a lot of poets or was it um, something that came on later
2: yeah, I mean, it kind of stretches back to childhood, which is not to claim that my childhood poems were good in any way. Um, but I wrote poems and wrote poems. And then as a teenager, of course, I had a lot of feelings. So I wrote a lot of poems that had a lot of feelings in them. Um, but when I went to college, I was a psychology major. Mm-hmm. I have a degree in psychology. Oh, yeah. Um <laughs> But I was taking workshops, I had a creative writing minor, which I had allowed myself, right? And I'd carefully planned um, time for my minor. And um, I had a wonderful teacher, Lynn McMahon, um, who at that time was at the University of Missouri. And she just said, you should be a poet. Mm -hmm. Um, Which actually made me very upset at the time, right? Because it Mm -hmm. just ended all these plans I had. And I understood there's no money in poetry. I mean, there should be, but there isn't any. And I thought, well, that's that's quite a terrifying thing to do. And I remember telling my mother first, and I was trying to pass it off as this crazy woman told me this crazy thing. And my mom's like, do you want to? And I was like, hmm. (laughs) And then I had a very similar conversation with my dad. Um, My parents had not gone to college, but they were really supportive of any decision I made. I mean, I was in grad school for 10 years total, and um, they never blinked an eye at it. They were just, you should do this. This is what you want. Mm
3: -hmm.
0: And then did you, you know, was the idea always to pursue teaching and and become an academic with the poetry?
2: No, because I didn't have any idea what poets did. Mm -hmm. I knew you could study poetry, but I really, I mean, I think I was getting toward the end of my master's degree Before I understood that, like, oh, most people now become professors or eventually become professors. Right. Um, And so I just kept doing the thing that I liked. And then I got to a point where I was like, okay, so I guess I become a professor now (laughs) and I like teaching. So it didn't feel like a big sacrifice. I know poets can do whatever they want. And lots of people are not in academia and it doesn't matter. But I, for me, they always fit together really well. Mm-hmm. So I felt it I wasn't really a plan, but I I feel quite pleased with where I've ended up.
0: Yeah, well, it's not a bad and bad thing to be, you know. I mean, talking poetry and thinking about poetry, you know, you know, help generating more. Just staying in that mental place um, is something that I think you know probably must help a lot. Um, you mentioned the the psychology. Do you find that is applicable in your poetry at all? Like, does thinking from that frame um, help your writing?
2: It might. I don't think about it consciously very much, but I'm very interested in why people do the things that they do. Mm-hmm. Right. I think that was what made me a psych major in the first place. Um, and I don't think that curiosity has ever gone away.
0: Yeah, I think, I mean, for me, that's what's interesting about poetry. It's a, the kind of confessional aspect of like, this is, this is what's going on in my head. And you get to see inside people's sort of souls through what they're willing to talk about. Um, and and that's just fascinating in a psychological way you know it's really interesting it's like like every poem is a character study you know of the of that individual author and what's going on even subconsciously in their mind so it's really fascinating in that in that regard uh, along the journey uh, you know was was there a time or something in particular you found you know where something was unlocked and you sort of understood more about how to go about writing a poem is there some sort of key that you found or or a moment of a leap of understanding or anything that sort of really clicked that made it sort of work for you to think.
2: Yeah. I am so I got my master's degree also at the University of Missouri. I was not ready to leave. No MFA program wanted me, which was fair. I didn't know what I was doing. Um and I was taking classes with all of these amazing PhD students, right? Mm-hmm. So it was like myself, my friend Katie, two little baby MAs with all of these PhD students most of whom were coming back to school after careers and other things, right? And these were people who were really talented, really dedicated, really had a sense of what they were doing, had read all of these things. Um, I was so like outmatched in every way mm-hmm. and knew it. And so I was writing all of these terrible, terrible formal poems because I just thought that's what poets did, right? Mm-hmm. I didn't feel called to form. I had, I re- they were awful. They were so awful. I wrote in forms that people really should not write in. I wrote a paradigm once <laughs> because I didn't know that Billy Collins' Peridol was a joke. <laughs> Someone had to explain that to me afterward. Uh-huh. Um, and they were awful. And I'd workshop them and people were kind, but you know, it was very clear to me that they were awful. I just couldn't help myself. And I finally wrote a poem that was not a formal poem and that was not awful. And it was based on a story my dad had told me about his family when he was growing up. Mm -hmm. And I remember afterwards, we workshopped it, and I was like, oh, this is not terrible. And one of the older students, Bob Watts, who is so wonderful, he's a wonderful poet, kind of got me over in the corner and was like, Carrie, I think you know what you need to do. (laughs) And I was just like, yeah, I think I do. And so that was really important to me, because after that, I was just... Right? Like, I will talk about my people. Um, And I did that for a long time, and I still do that to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. And it was so freeing.
0: Yeah. It's interesting because I was just talking to um, Annie Finch, who was – uh, in the winter issue coming up and you know, she's a, as a formal poet and she had the exact opposite where it was um, you know, people said, don't, you're not allowed to write formal poems. And then all of a sudden she wrote formal poems and it broke her out. So it's really interesting to hear the opposite, you know, so close together after talking to her. Um, it, it is interesting, you know, that the difference between the two and, and the way they function just on like a generative level, like there's such a different way of going about poetry between the two and it's sort of fascinating to find your own way of going about it. Um, now that, that takes us into because she became, you know, a, a professor. Um, and then that takes us into the sort of corporate culture poems, which are which I, um, I I have to confess, I thought that you worked in a corporate place and then left to go back to Leo academia because I'd read a bunch of these poems online. Um, you know, we published one in Rattle, you know, maybe five years ago, and um, and so I was thinking that you'd worked in a corporate environment and then came into poetry, but instead it's sort of the other way around. So the corporate environment is like a metaphor for the academic world. So so tell us how you came to these kind of poems uh, before we we read one.
2: Yeah, um, and I'm so charmed that I've tricked you into thinking that <laughs> I have a corporate did.
5: career.
2: I should have just let you believe that. Um, I think for me, so corporate language is so interesting, right? Like all of this, um, all of this language that's used to like signal other kinds of meanings. Right. And how anodyne a lot of corporate languages on its surface, how vicious it can be under the surface. Um, I also my first um, tenure track job was at the University of Wisconsin colleges. I was on one of the smaller campuses, a level institution that no longer exists. Um, But it was part of that wave of um, the way that academic institutions were becoming increasingly corporatized, Mm -hmm. right? Which I think now is so common that we barely even have to talk about it because everybody just understands that's what's happening. Um, But I was noticing even in our like tiny little campus, right? Some of the bureaucracy that was creeping in, some of the doublespeak that um, was a little bit of a code I had to crack because I was not familiar with it.
3: Mm
2: -hmm. Um, There was at one time they were threatening us and it really was just a threat. They were going to have us fill out timesheets throughout (laughs) the day so that we could document our work and make sure that, you know, we were really earning our salaries. Mm -hmm. Um, And as a poet, part of my job was to write poems, right? That, That one in my file, that was part of what I was there for. And so I never wrote this poem, but I had such fun for a while just um, imagining what that would look like, right? So, And at the time, I was writing poems about professional wrestling, and so my timesheet was going to be like, 4.15, wake up thinking about Ric Flair, (laughs) 4.30, walk the dog. 5.30, why am I still thinking about Ric Flair? Because I was like, if you want to know what I do in a day, I will tell you, (laughs) right? And then you will never ask me again. So I think that's where the corporate poems came from. And I just, they also have been such fun to write. Um, I started this project um, quite a while ago, and then I was working on it when I stopped and wrote Griefland. And then I went back to the corporate poems, and I think I'm probably about finished writing them now. Um can't do this forever.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: It's just, it's been so enjoyable.
0: Yeah. Well, I definitely, you can tell that you have fun with them. And that's why, I, that's probably why it fooled me so well, because I thought you were, <laughs> you know, sitting through these HR meetings, you know, writing poems at one point or, or, you know, thinking about it. And I don't know, it just, it seems to fit so well. Do you want to read, a, let's read, hear one so people can get an idea of them.
2: All right. This is HR Explains Your Severance Package. We apologize for the slow shipping, any damage caused by damp or careless handling. Don't assume because the box is stamped fourth class, that's what we think of you. To make sure you stay well once your insurance stops. We've included vitamins, a first aid kit with extra gauze, some drugs we bought online but were afraid to take. We worried alcohol would be a bad idea so for comfort we knitted an afghan to cozy up the suits you'll wear around the house while you rethink the color of your parachute how full your bucket is the fountain pens left over from last year's awards we didn't want congratulations to seem like a taunt so we used a paper clip to scrape off what we could we really hope the bank won't take your car especially during daylight with the neighbors watching but just in case Here's a bus pass so you won't be trapped. A Starbucks card for lattes while you fail to finish your screenplay. We've also packed the rest of your office. Gum, toothbrush, photos predating your divorce. Although we were too late to stop the looting of your Legos and LaCroix, we did reclaim your antique paper knife, but the blades are sharp, we're holding it for now. Because we know it hurt to be let go so suddenly, and on the eve of bonus season, we hope you'll accept this package in the spirit that it's meant. It may not be the cash you were expecting, but it's better than the nothing we were told to send.
0: Yeah, that's a great poem. That's from a forthcoming book. Uh, What's the title of the book going to be? Do you know yet?
2: It's tentatively titled um, Performance Review.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's great. Um, And... And that was HR Explains Your Severance Package. And um, it's just interesting, you know, how much of that has crept into the university systems where, you know, you used to think of even, you know, when I was in college, there were a bunch of professors that were sort of these freewheeling, like barefoot skateboarding in class and like could never get in trouble. And there's a downside, of course, to never being able to get in trouble. <laughs> but um uh but, but, there is this sort of uh mood we used to have of like you know anything kind of goes, and there's a free thought type stuff, and there's no corporate feel to college, you know it's like where you go to think about whatever your thoughts take you and uh, and now there's just so much bureaucracy uh that's building and building, I think if you look at the stats, the number of professors hasn't increased at all relative to the number of um you know bureaucrats in the middle. Um, why do you think that is? And how much of a problem do you think it is for, for teaching and trying to deliver an education?
2: Okay. I'm going to answer this question very carefully. Okay. Um, I actually, I don't know how it happened. I'm sure there's scholarship we could look into, right. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's not like actual corporations are so well functioning that the rest of us should mimic how they run. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, I think. The problem is that all those layers of bureaucracy, some of which are quite useful, right, um, they take resources that could be going to students. And I think that's a problem. And I think it's also a problem when there are people in positions of power in an academic setting who don't understand what professors actually do. hmm so, right. We need a lot of those offices. I can't, I can't manage financial aid. I don't understand how that works. We need registrars. We need all that good stuff. Um, and I don't know how many assistant vice presidents any institution actually needs. Yeah. And then there's the whole
0: thing. I mean, like, for example, the Gettysburg Review, which is being shut down now, you know, based on a ruling by the college's board, even though it's the one thing the college is known for with such a great legacy. I mean, I mean, no, just on as far as like a cultural impact, it's so much a bigger thing than the college itself. And they're just scrapping it because, you know, some I think some financial um, people went in and said, "Hey, this is some fat you can cut," and they they just cut it. And um, and so having to deal with that is a, is a real problem too. You know, I know a lot of people who have left teaching just because they don't want to deal with the meetings and the you know all the things that go along with it. Um, is that something that you ever think about? Is it? I know you mentioned loving teaching and being in that environment. Is the the payoff is it ever close that the having to deal with all of that is is tough enough that you might not want to do it anymore? Or is the pay is the reward still that big that it doesn't matter?
2: Um, I think um, I'm very happy at Rhode Island College, which is where I am now. And um, I feel good about the work that I do every day. Um, And so absolutely, it is still paying off in the sense that, right, teaching and getting to hang out with cool colleagues and see what other people are doing is so worth it. Mm -hmm. Um, I think of my previous job, one of the reasons why I decided I had to leave is because I thought I was dying. Um, I spent so much time... Doing work that I was not trained for right again like administrative bureaucratic kinds of work that I wasn't trained for that I didn't like that it was hard not to get kind of focused on the worst parts of my job Mm -hmm. in ways that really did suck a lot of the joy out of the teaching and the things that I really did like. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I've been in that place before where the balance was definitely out of whack. Um, and I'm grateful not to be in that situation now.
0: Yeah. Well, that's really good to hear. I mean, this college is a wonderful thing, you know, and yeah, yeah. Um, it's, um, Carlos Schwartz says it's the Green Mountains Review I was talking about. It's, it's both places. The Green Mountains Review shutting down, and then just a couple of weeks ago, Gettysburg Review too. Um, and I know uh, Am Jester, who was a guest in the Rattlecast, offered to buy their uh, you know their stuff and keep it going. And they won't reply to his emails either. The the, the board. So anyway, it's kind of. Uh, intense situation there if anybody wants to follow it there's like petitions and stuff to try to keep it going and it'd be nice if they just listen to um am jester so um, anyway that is a side topic though um mm-hmm. let, let's hear another one of these poems because I, I just i did love these i've seen these all over you know in different publications and i, I think it just it was one of those maybe confirmation biases where I, you, you published the one and i kept seeing you uh publish other ones in other places i, I always love these poems let's hear another one um the next one is uh how meanings always go
2: Yes. Uh, And this poem is after Philip Schultz, how meetings always go. Someone is always picking at a $12 salad. Someone is always drinking weight loss tea while someone else is eating cold pizza. Someone is always anxious to lean in and someone else is spreading elbows into neutral space. Someone is always droning stale buzzwords that someone else is marking off a hand-drawn bingo card. Someone is always passing out materials that are too dense to read. Someone is always showing slides full of fantastic graphs, and someone else is drafting sex they know they shouldn't send. Someone is always so well-dressed they may be on their way to a court date, conference, or interview, while someone else is wearing ancient stains. Someone is overstating past success to someone who is nodding, captivated, while someone else is tapping SOS. Someone is always building consensus and someone else is praying for a flip table. Someone is always jealous of whoever is absent. Someone is always crabbing toward the door while someone is suggesting staying late. Someone is always deeply pleased by what's being achieved. Someone is always sick of false progress. Someone is always wishing they weren't overbooked and someone else is longing for more invites to accept. And everyone is always wondering, Why only they can see how meetings always go.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's great. I love the last line too. How meetings always go is the title after Philip Schultz. And uh, you know, did you do any research? You know, did, uh, or is it just, is the mapping so close between staff meetings and this that it, you didn't have to? Because the, the thing that I love about all these poems is for uh, for the first, I don't know, 10 or year, five years of Rattle, I was in a real estate office. Like I had a little cubicle that Rattle ran out of. And to be like friendly and not the rude weirdo poet, like I went to like, and actually to get the free food too, I'll have to be honest, because there was free lunch all the time. But I went to the, a lot of those meetings and, and just this is exactly how they felt. You know, and um and it just it captured it so accurately. But uh but so that's I was surprised that you haven't sat through a thousand meetings like this. So was there any research you did um to get this down so well?
2: Um I did some research, yeah. Um I read memoirs about corporate life, um just the funny ones. And I read some research studies, right? There's all kinds of wonderful research um about how corporations function and white-collar work in general. Um, I also shamefully read like some of those like terrible business bestsellers that you can find in airports. Um, those were haunting, really very upsetting. Um, and then I got really interested in tech stuff for a while, right? So I read tech memoirs and some novels about the tech industry where I think you see a lot of these qualities kind of intensified, um, cause everything's happening so fast. So I did some research, but I haven't sat through a thousand meetings, but I've sat through
0: a few. Yeah. Well, it it feels very authentic. Um, uh, Before I read the last poem, I wanted to talk about the professional wrestling, too, because (laughs) I find that that's so fascinating and and nobody else does really or that I know that I can talk to. But just because of that idea of, um, you know, breaking the fourth wall, that whole kayfabe concept um, of, you know, everybody who's watching knows it's fake, but suspends disbelief and enjoys this like interplay of the fakeness with reality you know mm-hmm. there's some fascinating aspect of it that's almost like it's like meta entertainment in a way that like nothing else is you know uh so how did you get interested in professional wrestling and, and what did you find exploring that
2: so i had no interest in professional wrestling i was aware that it existed fine whatever um my husband though would watch raw pretty regularly And so he's watching it i'm just on the couch i'm like fiddling with my phone whatever and he says you like families right and at the time i was writing about families right so i'm like yes i I do like families and he said you should look up the von eric's you'd like them (laughs) Mm -hmm. and so i look up the Von eric's it's this horrible tragic story so i'm sorry for laughing a little bit but he was not wrong and that there were a lot of things to explore within this one wrestling family (laughs) right And so that led me to another story, which led me to another story. Um, I was really, because they're such great character stories, because they're the characters they play, they're their actual lives. There's the intersection of that. Um, I went deep for a while. Um, Most of it, I think at this point, has kind of left my head a little bit, but I really enjoyed it. And then I ended up writing an essay at the suggestion of a friend of mine because it makes no sense right i mean i tell the story sometimes and people think this was a thing i did in college and i'm like no i was in my 30s (laughs) i was like a year away from tenure and i was doing this right um but i enjoyed it so much i mean so much of it is sad too but a lot of it was fun so so what what angle
0: like like what did you learn that you enjoyed the most about it was it the the interplay between people because it is like this own culture it's just so fascinating in as a subculture and there's so many subcultures and I think you yeah. explore a lot with your work like like the the corporate culture um, is it more that or is it the is there something unique about it that makes it you know something worth worth exploring
2: um, I think it was part, it really was partly character study, mm-hmm. right? And having these narratives um, to trace, I, part of it was the culture, right? So I love the language. Um, I love the way that wrestlers interact with each other and like the codes that they have and all of that kind of stuff, Um it was really just tailor-made for me to like fall into, I think really. Mm-hmm. And I like the surprise of it, uh-huh. right? I mean, nobody expects me. <laughs> Chad Kiniko does it and they're beautiful. Mm-hmm. Nobody thinks that I'm going to be doing that. <laughs> did, did that, is that in any books? Uh,
0: is there a book about it?
2: No, um, a lot of them were in magazines. Mm-hmm. Um, I was in like a really fun professional wrestling anthology and had a number of poems in it, but you know, as a manuscript, I could never quite make it work. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: yeah. Well, that's interesting. I mean, it'd be, it'd be something that's definitely fun to read. Um, you know, I mean, there's so many things that are, that are just subcultures like that. Um, do you, yeah. do you find that, I mean, it seems like it, that you're, you're drawn to certain things that are just strange and then you sort of obsess about it for a little while and they become books. Is that a, is that a common theme for you?
2: Yes. Um, I'm very much a project poet, right? I like to, I'll find something and then I like to research it and I like to think about it and I like to write, You know a million poems most of which are quite bad but some of which are okay um because the more i'm thinking about something the more i find to think about Mm um and i like that and i always like the surprise of it um you know i wrote like three wrestling poems and was like well that's fun and then you know like 30 poems later i'm like huh um (laughs) And for some reason, even knowing this about myself and being able to articulate it to you, it will happen to me again like two years from now and I will be completely surprised.
0: (laughs) Well, that's great. So maybe a chat book of wrestling poems would be good, if not a full Mm -hmm. length. Um, uh, uh, So what is it that you're sort of obsessed with now? Is there anything past the corporate culture? Do you you have a glimmering of what your next thing is gonna be?
2: Yeah, I'm actually um, working pretty intensively on some poems um, that are a little bit connected to grief, um, because my mother died, um, fairly well within the past couple of years, I guess that's not so recent anymore. Um, it's made me revisit a lot of things that I said in my book, family resemblances, which had a lot of family stories that had been passed down. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so I've been thinking about that a lot. Um, I've been thinking about what it means to be a daughter. I don't have kids and I never wanted kids, so I can not I can only think a little bit about what it means to be a mother, but I don't have experience. Mm-hmm. I have a lot of daughtering experience. Yeah. Um, so it's been interesting to see myself kind of think about those things. And I have siblings and they have their own stories and their own experiences that I've been thinking about too. Um, it feels like a little bit of a reconsideration i guess of some things that i thought i understood mm-hmm. and maybe i don't
0: yeah well that's interesting well we'll look forward to that and the uh, wrestling chapbook <laughs> <We're> coming <laughs> up at some point um, but let's finish out uh with the the last poem from uh from the um the corporate book uh, the strategic plan
2: the strategic plan no one knows its origins Like carpools and happy hour, the plan has simply always been. It's awkward page breaks and phrasing, its preservation of obsolete projects and personnel are evidence of its ambition, how it defies the limits of language, software, human thought. No one has ever read the plan in its entirety. Attempts to download it result in system crashes, sunspots and recession. A single hard copy is rumored to exist, its pristine pages collated and punched, then stored in binders ordered on a shelf, but no one knows exactly where. A hundred years from now, when the company has ceased to be and its headquarters crumble, the strategic plan will rest among the rubble waiting to be found. Lacking an exact translation, its runic nature will give rise to cults that worship its straight lines, its acronyms and colored fonts. It will not inspire war, only art and rumination. No one who encounters the strategic plan remains untouched. It features in the dreams of former employees who understand too late its vital truth. Every aspect of the plan, its ever-shifting goals, its layers of revision and appendices act as both map and goad. The strategic plan is perfect even in its flaws it isn't meant to be fulfilled that's great
0: too and you know my uh, strategic plan experience is with a nonprofit, and uh, not rattle a different one that i was with And we spent like two years making this strategic plan that is just what is the i don't know so it's just great i love that poem i love the humor and playfulness and all these and, and they're just so entertaining um, thanks for sharing these, and thanks for the, the moving poems from *Griefland* too. Uh, thanks for being a guest today, Gary. It's been, Carrie, it's been a lot of fun talking to you and uh, and sharing your poems.
2: Uh oh, thank you so much, Tom, and thank you to everyone who's listening. This has been really wonderful. Yeah, great, my pleasure. Yeah, have a great night. Thanks.
0: And that was Carrie Shipers. Uh Her book *Griefland*. You can find uh, you can find more and all of her work at her website, which is CarrieShypers.com. That's C-A-R-R-I-E. Uh, shipers, S-H-I-P-E-R-S.com. So you find all four of our books there um, and keep an eye out for the ones that are forthcoming as well. Now we're going to take a quick break and go to the prompt lines. And the prompt for this week, uh, let's put this up on the screen. The prompt for this week is to write a how-to poem about something you don't actually know how to do. Uh, If you have a how-to poem like that, uh, feel free to share it. How you do is you email your poem first to Prompt Lines. That's prompt lines, all in word, at rattle.com. And uh, then we can show the poems on the screen as you read them. And then find the Zoom link in the chat windows on YouTube or Facebook. And, uh, and join on the, uh, the Zoom here and share your poems. If you would uh, like to just listen and enjoy other people's prompt poems, then just sit tight right where you are. We'll be back with more poetry in just a moment. Thanks everybody for waiting and joining us for the prompt lines. Now the prompt for this week, like I said, was to write a how-to poem about something you don't know how to do. And uh, we have our prompt poems editor here, of course, Katie Dozier. Hi Katie, how are you today?
5: great I've really been enjoying the interview that was really fascinating particularly the corporate poems like it makes me want to write poems about many different weird things what a great idea
0: yeah it definitely is I mean and and you can it allows you to explore and examine and dive into something that you might not have otherwise so I think it's a great that's the thing I always like want to do that like I always have these like grand visions and then I could never make like poems out of them for some reason I've tried a few times and I just can't get it to work in my dreams I want to be a a project book poet because there's a lot of topics I like, it's like a different part of my brain, I guess, is maybe what it comes down to. Do, do, do you do you see yourself possibly doing that?
5: I definitely do. I mean, that's kind of a thing where I'm like, I could do a chat book about that, but I'll just have to start holding you to it and you'll hold me to it and suddenly we'll have 8,000 books.
0: Okay. Well, if I do it, <laughs> bad poems though, because I just can't make the poems work. But anyway, so what did you do for the, uh, for the how to poem?
5: Well, I think I was okay. So when I said out to do this, I think I remembered that you have a poem that's how to whistle Mm -hmm. and then i was thinking about that poem and so the first w that came to my brain that i didn't know how to do was whittle and so i just went with that and wrote the poem pretty quickly and it came out as a sonnet one. Ah, there you go it's been (laughs) a while since i've written written a 13 line poem but that's how this one came out this week
0: okay well let's hear it oh okay If okay. you have something more to say, say it. Don't be shy. Sure.
5: No, I just was, I almost was going to say and then decide not to say that I developed a cough like an hour ago. Oh, so no. I apologize. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I start coughing. <clears throat> okay. How to whittle. I am a little block of wood in his palm. Look how he rubs me against his ring finger as if to start a fire. How he struck a vow to carve, to keep carving. The glint from hidden knives unsheathed how a vampire's teeth gleam in the moonlight. His walnut words soon splintered. For years, I lay piled on the ground. Relief from being carved never came. Then, left in his hand, just dust that should have saved me.
0: Yeah, look at that was How to Whittle by Katie Dozier. Um, and, and so how uh, how did that, you know, you just dove in once you had the title and the title generated the rest?
5: The title generated the rest and I... I managed to write quite a few this week. I thought this was the best. I tend to believe it or not share my best as opposed to my worst, (laughs) my worst being like just the title didn't go anywhere. Do you
0: remember any uh, more titles that you shared that you wrote?
5: uh, Let's see. Um, I, okay. One was inspired in part by my daughter, Lizzie, who is obsessed with the idea that she'll be the person to first fold a piece of paper more than seven times.
0: (laughs) And she, she showed me and and she, uh, she had a trick there.
5: A little bit was... of a trick, which Tim kindly did not point out to her. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so it was how to fold a piece of paper more than seven times. And mm-hmm. I kind of started, but I, I feel like that one is going somewhere, but needs some work. Mm-hmm. So one of those are like just, uh, I think honestly, I was going to, too, just pick a random verb, like use a random verb generator and do the first one I didn't know how to do would be fun. So. That's a good idea.
0: That could be a project poem book, how to, a how-to guide.
5: <laughs> yeah, it could come with like a block of wood and whittling instructions. <laughs> good. <laughs> All
0: right, well, for mine, I, I actually, the fact that I had one that was like exactly the prompt kind of threw me off a little bit. I was hard to like get the structure of that out of my head because I was just reading it like not too long ago, uh, putting together yeah. a manuscript. And I don't know. So So I had trouble figuring out what to do. And I, um, I was playing catch with my son, Colin, and, um, and we were sort of just throwing out ideas as we were throwing the ball back and forth. And he said, you know, oh, all the things I don't know how to do. And so one of the ones was like, how to sing on, in, in tune. <laughs> it's a problem and uh then he started it was like how to jump out of a plane and then he said how to pack a parachute and so i did how to pack a parachute that seemed like it had some resonance uh, among the ones so anyway this is what i settled on this is how to pack a parachute also it might be 13 lines too i don't know let's see this is a how to pack a parachute first no you should never pack a parachute unless you know how to pack a parachute Knowing is hard, but the packing is easy, like anything else. is as simple as checking the lines for twists and tangles, flaking the canopy, shaking loose the folds that shouldn't be folds, and then folding, S-fold, S-fold, tuck, tuck, cinch. Try this. Empty a room of all you've ever owned. Place yourself on your back at its center so that your arms outstretched stretch to nothing. Feel the weight of the air. Remember that you are always falling there. That is How to Pack a Parachute. And I I, I meant to say, too, that I, I, I watched, like, two or three YouTube videos about how to pack a parachute. And they all had that tone. And so I was trying to match the tone of the people um, saying, you know, it's not that hard. Just don't do it. <laughs> so there you go. Anyway, that is my How to Pack a Parachute poem. Let's see what everybody else has. Uh, Joe Cottonwood um, popped on board first. his first line. Hey, Joe. How you doing? Hi, there.
6: Hey. Um, okay. Didn't... It's funny with these prompt poems, I need to sit on a poem for a month before I know whether it's a keeper or not. And (laughs) It would just throw them out and it makes me a little nervous. But anyway, um, what I don't know how to do but wrote a poem about is how to swim from Pescadero, California to Shanghai, China. Oh, wow. (laughs) Here's everything I know. Okay. Wait an hour after eating Shower before you enter the water. Google for Pacific currents. Bring pepper spray for sharks. Don't forget your passport. Watch out for oil tankers. Stop checking your phone. Find messages in bottles. It's okay to pee in the ocean. Seals do it. Stay south of the great Pacific garbage patch. Sing along with humpbacks. You will develop a taste for plankton. Pause in the warm bath of El Nino, then push on. Bring audiobooks. Twice a day, swish your mouth. Salt water is good for dental health. One weary morning when every muscle aches, you will see God. Or is it a sea monster? If you spot a mermaid, be cool. Don't take selfies. Remember, on the other side, the mermaids speak Mandarin. Pearls speak any language. Find some. Give some. Enjoy. Yeah, that is really
0: fun. Thanks for sharing that. That was How to Swim from Pescadero, California to Shanghai, China. Um, a lot of uh, playfulness in that poem and, and some touching aspects too. Thanks for sharing that, Joe. That was great. Thank you. Yeah, that was Joe Cottonwood. Uh, next is Audrey Friedman. Hi, Tim. Hey, Audrey. Great to see you.
7: Good to be here. Okay. How true this poem is. <laughs> how to compensate for dyscalculia. I think
0: you're gonna have to tell us what that is.
7: (laughs) Uh, I think you'll find out in the poll.
0: Okay, let's hear it then.
7: I clench the paper map in my hand, so many creases that I know I can never refold it. Under pressure to navigate, but I don't know where we are or see where we are going. Do I make a right turn or a left, my husband asks, and chuckling does the opposite of what I tell him to do. That strategy often works. He shakes his head, rolls his eyes, and laughs. But seriously, my map is upside down. I insist I have a disability, dyscalculia. Thank goodness for GPS and cell phones. I use them because if I didn't, I drive from Rhode Island to Maine via Mexico City, a place that rings with notes of mariachi and stink.
0: <laughs> That's excellent. Thanks. I love that. So obviously the, the difficulty in with with directions Map. and maps. Map yeah. reading.
5: Yep. Yeah,
0: exactly. And uh, it's, it's interesting how many poems already have come up with certain certain themes. And Rhode Island pops up, and the uh, folding. Everyone's folding stuff today. It's very interesting. I
7: spent thirty years in Rhode Island before I came down to South Carolina. Oh, really? And I wish I was there to know Carrie first uh-huh. because she is an impressive figure.
0: Ah, uh, yeah, she definitely is. Uh, so glad. And thanks for joining us, uh, Audrey.
7: Thank you.
0: It was Audrey Friedman with How to Compensate for Dyscalculia, which I think I almost said right, and a new word that I get to learn today. So thanks for that, too, Audrey. <laughs> um, let's see. Uh, next, we will go to Dick Westheimer. Hey, Tim. Hey, Dick. Good to see you. Good
8: to see you. I think I'm just going to bring the whole mood of the place down with Ooh. my poem.
0: <laughs> well, you know, we have oh. a lot of variety within. We can dance around in the same box. That's what we're going to do. Yeah,
8: all, all the playfulness and all the wonderful uh, um, turns of image and stuff. And I wrote one called How to Bring Peace to the Middle East.
0: Well, I mean, that's something that we could all use right now. So there's that. Yeah. Oh, but I have no idea how to do <laughs> that's it. That's true. So. That's the problem. All
8: right. Uh, So um, this is it. I'll give you a few things that you might have looked up if you were reading the poem, and that is, for those of you not familiar with the uh, uh, Book of Genesis, um, Abraham had two sons: one, Isaac, who basically his descendants were, um, um, you know, became the Hebrews, and then then the Jewish people, and then Ishmael, who are who is sort of claimed as the father of what then would subsequently be known as islam
0: mm-hmm.
8: so abraham being the co- the common person there so these two people show up in the poem how to bring peace to the middle east the epigraph is from genesis from the tears of grief spring up the wellspring waters of peace and reconciliation first tie yourself to a chair then forget. Forget you ever held your baby. Forget your house had walls. Forget that favorite olive tree you climbed as a child. Then forget your bubby and what she told you about her numbered tattoo. Forget you ever tasted your Jida's taboon. Forget your Torah portion about Isaac, or was that Ishmael? Forget how one was neck bent by his father's knife and the other exiled with his mother. Forget God's promises. Forget God's promises. Now close your eyes. Squeeze until your tears flow with fire, until they set you afloat in your chair in Ishmael's. Or is it Isaac's? Rise above the deluge. Untie your brother, and just before you both go under, he reaches to you beneath the water, pulls you close, and before he lets go, says, I am so sorry, brother. Now imagine your hands loosed, and with the soft pad of your thumb, gentle away the tear streaking his war-worn cheek.
0: Well, that's easy enough dick <laughs> no problem at all i think we got it wrapped up <laughs> yeah. how to bring peace to the middle east and yeah it does it, it show the complexity and, and the difficulty of it of, of trying to get past all these things thanks for sharing that yeah thank you yep take care it was dick Bye. westheimer with how to bring peace to the middle east um nate jacob is up next
3: hey hey I nate. yeah the good party to yeah i was prepared to wait till the end but here we are
0: well i don't know it, it jumped you right in there I don't know if you were later maybe i assume that it, it shows it to me in order because it tends to but sometimes i wonder i don't really understand how the order goes but it's my karma i think so maybe it goes by karma maybe they sense through the the inner tubes of the internet that they uh, that you're a good guy
3: so. i've would been away way down on the list anyway uh so interrupt yeah, want so show? i I've kind of repurposed a poem I've been working on and made it a bit of a Mm -hmm. how-to. How to disappoint your children. It's easier than you think. Early this morning, the weather forecast was calling for several hours of long-awaited snow. I, forgetting decades of parental trial and error, not to mention millennia of genetic programming, Blurted out to my bleary-eyed children that white would be falling all morning long, perhaps, if lucky, even beyond lunchtime, piling up while they sat warm and dry at school. And my kids, who placed more faith in me than I would ever place in any meteorologist, determined it all to be gospel truth, at which moment I was terror-struck with the fear of the foolish sinner, knowing should the prom- <coughs> should the promised snows fail to fall, I would be justifiably burned at their stake, a heretic liar, the devil's own weatherman, which is why I sit now at this picture window, planning either my escape across the rain-wet fields, mercy, across the rain-wet fields, which will luckily leave no snowy footprints in my wake, or our building of snowmen and igloos, and perhaps, as is customary in winter's glory, a snowball fight. Which would have ended too soon yet again with someone's suddenly bloodied face, then a warm safe fire, cocoa and cinnamon toast, a proper celebration of winter actually arriving, and of my surviving, yet again, my own foolishness.
0: (laughs) Very fun. Thanks again for sharing that, Nate. What was it called again?
3: How to Disappoint Your Children.
0: (laughs) How to Disappoint (laughs) Your Children. Yeah. Great title, too. Uh, Thanks for sharing that. (laughs) Thanks a lot. Yeah, it was Nate Jacob. Thanks so much, Nate. Uh, let's see rob harris is next rob maybe froze let's go to uh, mike bales instead i don't know it looks like rob might be frozen hey mike
9: hello there how's it going good good to see you yep good i like the poems and grief my serious writing started in 93 when my dad died and writing poems is kind of way to get on with my life Mm -hmm. um i was in muscatine public access tv this morning which is a thrill uh-huh. so an hour-long interview thing it imitates a morning show program is called library alive so that was kind of neat oh that's really neat yeah congrats that's cool um the muscatine writers group there has a lot of good connections with people and it it kind of stemmed through my association with the muscatine writers group that's called writers in the avenue
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, very interesting yeah so uh, Um, yeah what do you have for us for a poem
9: like you i was probably more into science and math in high school than the creative writing although i have always liked shorts good novels and good poems and all that for sure Mm -hmm. and so this is a touch of science um i just sent it to you it's in pantoum form okay split an atom how to split an atom yeah let's hear it to split an atom I'll close my eyes for a second, push a button on the console, and race atoms through magnetic fields, through a track underground. Pushing a button on the the console, I'll make do with my best guess. Through a track underground, particles travel at the speed of light. I'll make do with my best guess, change matter into another form, as particles travel at the speed of light. For an untold passion to make and destroy to change matter into another form the reality lies within dreams for an old untold passion to make and destroy while i ponder my time and place the reality lies within dreams for an untold passion to make and destroy i'll close my eyes for a second and push a button on the console
0: Oh, that's great. Great ending and great use of that form, too. Thanks for sharing that. And uh, Thanks, it's yeah, fun. Yeah, yeah, thanks, Mike. That was uh, Mike Bales with How to Split an Atom, something I also don't know how to do. <laughs> Let's go to uh, Clayton Clark. Hi there. Hey, Clayton, good to see you today. Hi,
4: Tim, how are you? I'm great. <laughs> well, um, I've got a sonnet, which... Shouldn't have a title, but it does. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Um, So, let's see. I don't know how, where, or why to buy a llama, but a friend of mine told me I should. He might not be the best source for pet recommendations, since he also said he was home, contemplating with force the tilt of Earth's axis which seemed to be becoming more pronounced as his evening wore on. Llamas littered my screen suddenly. I fell fast for the gentle beasts after reading about how social and smart they are. Turns out loved llamas may treat humans as like kind. So too much care could be returned with bouts of spitting kicking and neck wrestling oh well we don't have the land i tell my friend thanks though i may change my life in the end
0: uh thanks for sharing that Clay. i always love a sonnet and that's one of the best lead-ins to the title i've ever (laughs) seen i don't know how (laughs) where or why to buy a llama (laughs) is not what you expect to come up at all (laughs) yeah thanks for sharing that thank you yep a lot of fun poems today let's see uh, next, we have uh, Mary Keating. Hello. <laughs> hey, Mary. Yeah, thanks for joining How us. How are you? Good. It's I'm fun
10: great. to be back. Yeah. Um, so I came across a really funny word i never heard before, and it's one of the longest words in the English language, and it means um, fear of long words. So oh, fun. Oh, yes.
0: <laughs> what, do you, oh, it's here right so here. I've been been
10: <laughs> practicing trying to say it, so I wrote two silly sonnets, this is one. Okay, great. All right, here we go. Recite daily to cure Hippopotaminstrosis phobia. I get it, big words can be quite scary. Just take a gander at this poem's title. Why not just say fear of long words, Mary, you ask, because you're already rattled. Blame the poet naming your disorder, either sadist or genius, But she's surely not a syllable hoarder. The pure irony makes a point. Say what? Identifying your disease with one spectacularly lengthy English word while edging toward preposterously fun, perhaps categorically absurd, will quell your fears of multisyllabic. As your tongue becomes quite acrobatic.
0: Love <laughs> <have> the <a> closing <laughs> couplet. Yeah, that's a lot of fun, and the reference poet says on the note is uh, Amy Netz. That's interesting too.
10: Yeah, and I can't say her name. If you you know how to say
0: that, um, I know she she says to just say Amy Nez.
10: Uh, okay, because <laughs> uh, she's a, a very a- long
0: Ness name. Hukumatahu? or something like that. I, I mean, I I can't exactly say it either. But she's a great poet. Really wonderful. How did that? So how did that? Uh, the poem come to be? How how is the reference to Amy?
10: Well, so I did some research. So I was figuring mm-hmm. what cruel psychiatrist would <laughs> name a disorder that way. And then I found out that Amy was responsible for adding phobia to it oh. and making it mugger.
0: Oh, that's really so interesting. That yeah, I had no idea. That's really cool. So and you have another one, too? Do you want to share the other one? Yeah, this is a one poking fun at YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> oh, great. That's <laughs> my favorite.
10: It's okay. how to get published by Rattle. <laughs> and it's from our... Uh, Critique of the week.
0: Oh, this is, so this is going to be good t- advice. Okay. From
10: Tim. <laughs> Begin your poem by setting time and place. You don't want Tim Green drifting from your verse. To plant him deep inside your poem's embrace, consider how to quench his pushcart thirst. A sonnet thought to catch his roving eyes, entice with slant rhymes, challenge standard form, As deviation turns into surprise, he'll sniff the necessary spice of charm. Use words evoking feeling, catches breath. Good poetry resides within our hearts. To textbook, we're in cardiac arrest. If we crave logic, we'd have read Descartes. Truth be told, I'm used to rejection, but now perhaps Wow, this poem's perfection.
0: <laughs> that's great. That is so fun. Thanks so much for sharing that, Mary. And you know, <laughs> that you. might be the key. <laughs> so You got it down. Thanks so much for sharing that. was <laughs> Mary Keating with two sonnets. Uh, how to get published by Rattle. And uh, how uh, recite daily to hear Hippopotamonstrosisquipedalophobia. <laughs> so there you go. Really fun. And that's neat about Amy doing that. I, I had no idea. All right. Uh, Mark Grignier is next in line hey mark
11: hi tim how's it going it's great yeah good to see you hey this is a poem that uh, i sort of repurposed to meant to with the for the prompt here so it's a beginner's guide to writing poems okay start with words in a line add another line that rhymes no 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 not like that No crimes of half rhyme marring what should be as clean and perfect as can be, from sea to shadowed sea. Don't let these inconstant times lead your poem astray. You must have something to say, to take off into metaphoric flights. As if you followed animal signs through dry rocks and buffalo grass, as faint and imprecise as justice in American's West, in America's West, in Custer's Day, when the Battle of the Little Bighorn presaged death a death mark, march forcing tribes away from homelands held 10,000 years or more by America's original Asian immigrants, not those trite, Johnny-come-lately white European folks fighting their way across continents called new. Another mistake, by God, lies mixed metaphors and similes dragged from who knows when or where, when rational thought must know that this new world is just as old as homelands across an old, cold ocean, left by unhappy folk who sailed away, leaving their growing pains behind, whose greed and hope pushed them into America's wilderness, home to tribes living their lives as best they could. Good people, I'm sure, but in the way said the new generations of immigrants, come from the East instead of the West, come from Europe with African slaves, making their way with knives and guns of steel to kill and maim with booze and new disease that followed them into camps and pueblos, longhouses, wickiups, teepees, wigwams, and hogans, where families lived and died in mass, conquered again and again by those who came to take these lands, remake them in the image of their old homelands, left behind but ruling still their beliefs and thoughts, the way they understood and honored all those preachers, poets, and philosophers who shaped their minds, our minds with words and thoughts that still define what we call poems, the very stink of what we want to forget, memories returned in words we call the best of what we think we know new poetry must be.
0: Uh, That's great. Thanks for sharing them. Mark. Great sounds in that poem. And also uh, interesting to take it back that far too. Fascinating. Thanks for sharing. Thank you. That was Mark Grinier with the beginner's guide to writing poems. A lot of a lot of poetry advice on this show too. A lot of life advice. It's like a self-help prompt lines. <laughs> uh, Rob, I see you moving there. Are you there?
12: Hey, yes. Uh, hey. Thanks, yeah. for, uh, thanks for sticking with me. I got excited when I heard my name and then I saw that I was moving my little box, but <laughs> Nobody else was I yeah, I thought that.
0: you kind of you know a a little frozen there,
12: <laughs> we're good. we' got yeah, you now. We thought yeah so, uh, <laughs> the zoom gods were testing me, but uh, <laughs> glad I'm uh, thanks for uh, thanks for letting me read. um I, I sent in something called How to Keep Useful Notes." uh-huh oh, that's interesting, yeah I don't have any idea about, um, <laughs> but it goes like this uh putting your ideas down on the paper is possibly the best way to ensure that they'll be available to you later on. So always keep a pad of paper at the ready and don't just rely on some oversized green pad such as the one I had to borrow from off of my neighbor's desk in order to jot all this down. And also make sure that you use a sharpened pencil with a functional eraser attached because this blue Sharpie is probably going to bleed through and make the next page that much harder to decipher. Be sure to use your your best, it looks like that word could be handwriting. (laughs) and avoid using overly long words such as abbreviations whenever possible. Just write A-B-R-S and try to figure it out later on. And finally, perhaps most importantly of all, don't put your folded up ideas into any sort of a pocket, including shirts and pants and especially jackets. While the laundry machine is a great tool, your best ideas are no match for even a single wash cycle
3: that
0: is great another poem i can relate to i i didn't take any notes in all of college and partially is because i wouldn't be able to read them later anyway so thanks for sharing that i love the handwriting line rob
12: thank you well that's i i struggle with it but i i, I try so uh but that, that's what's holding me back is i i've been out of doing little bits of paper and i don't know when get any of them are. so uh, <laughs> yeah for sure thanks for letting me share yeah very fun thanks for sharing that yeah my pleasure
0: yeah. And that was how to keep useful notes by Rob Harris. Um, let's see. Mary Lisa is next. Hey, Mary Lisa.
13: Hi, how is everybody? Great.
0: Yeah. Good to see you.
13: You too. I was, um, responding, um, to Rob there, uh, and everybody when you unmuted me, but I'm ready. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Great. So what do you have for us?
13: All right. So I wrote a fun one and I wrote a more serious one. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what we have time for. I'm going to riff off of, I think it was Mark. I'm not sure how to, this is um how to become a colonizer. Okay. Or how to colonize. Okay. All right. I'll read this one. This is the more serious one. Okay. Ivy climbs three trees, winds a path through the iris. Even the honeysuckle tonight is overbearing, a sickening too, sweat, too sweet scent like ether. It wants to eat everything. After I cut, I use it as rope, tether leftover iris leaves low to the ground. Meanwhile, Virginia creeper earns its name. So suddenly I look and the entire yard is swallowed. But the ivy doesn't kill the creeper shooting up from the ground in new places like geysers. And the creeper doesn't kill the ivy that digs trenches stretching far until it reaches new ground. I wish they would annihilate each other but they don't. So I rip them out knowing if I don't end their spread, nothing will.
0: Yeah. Really interesting uh, metaphor there. How to colonize, become a colonizer. Thank you for sharing that, Mary Lisa. And then yeah, feel free. We have, uh, I think six people I was counting. And we have like six people left. I think we have time for, for another one. It is over the same length. I assume.
13: It's very short. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's a little more fun. I, I had more fun with it uh-huh. and it came out a lot faster. It was yeah. a quick one. Well, that's so great. It's, Let's uh, hear it. Yeah, go ahead how to be a bird <laughs> first decide what kind of bird you want to be and don't be a cat about it um, no monkeying around ignore the elephant in the corner imploring you pretend you're not a bird lift a wing to wind's temptation then give in and lift the other one now you're above the snakes in the grass the rats and their races now you're faster than people scattered below you Where will you go when you when you go, and will you maybe stay in my garden, in my yard, in my Eden? Might you touch down briefly to feed me? Did I say how to be a bird? I meant a god. First, decide what kind of god you want to be. A
0: very interesting poem, Mary. I have to ask, how much, how long did it take to uh, train the cat? To appear at the exact moment that was you address uh, just... the cat. Right on cue. That must have been a lot of work.
13: <laughs> that was so crazy. <laughs> I know.
0: That was. That was funny. How to be a bird. Thanks for sharing that.
13: Always a good time. <laughs> yeah,
0: thanks. thanks. Take care.
13: Yeah,
0: it was Mary Lisa Dominicius with uh how to be a bird. And uh and the other one was um um oh how to be a colonizer, yeah. Let's see, uh, Bishwajit Mishra is back from his absence for the week. Hey, Bishwajit.
14: Hey, Tim. <laughs>
0: hey, great to see you. Glad you're back.
14: Yeah, I'm back. I'm, I'm just, let me just, I don't know what's happening to my video. Okay. <laughs> I'm a little under the weather. So... Oh, I'm sorry
0: to hear that. A lot of confident? stuff going around for sure.
14: Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, so I have a uh, I, at the point submitted on, uh, I've submitted. Yeah, no
0: I, yeah, I'm pulling it up right here.
14: So, how, you, how to learn
0: fly. Interesting, I'd like to know that too.
14: <laughs> yeah, he's just talking too much, he's quitting bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> how to learn flying. When a Mac fly flew across my windshield, that felt real close. And I worried about safety. When I saw a formation flying and a hawk perched on a high pole watching on a summer afternoon, which should have been a twilight in fall, definitely past sunset, way past in winter, I was caught up in my words. I don't even know the gender of the magpie, none of the birds for that matter, which throws pronouns out of bounds. Not that that matters, but how do I get my fountain, my formation? Uh, uh, get my formation without pronouns. Repeating nouns are like Sisyphus boulder. But really, how else can I fly? I got close to it when I got myself strapped onto the glider for a surrogate flight. And now, that is like a starter pack which has drugged me to start dreaming about flying, at least flying a plane before I'm flown out. Now, who can tell that buzzard in me and no offense to buzzards because they they just feed, not hunt. That you don't have to be an Icarus and get the sun. And you don't have to learn flying. You can't let yourself be limited by the blue of the sky. You don't need the sky to fly. Sky is not space as fish is not river. Nor water is, nor pebble. River is all that and more, including boat, including you when you cross it. And also including the dried mud on the dried bed. So let's give the space a chance and get off the ground and let's go lift and fly with the wings we have, the wings good for you. Uh,
0: great advice eventually too, Bishwajit. I love that. <laughs> Thanks for sharing. It. <laughs> Thank you, Tim. Yep. Have a good night. You too. That was Bishwajit Mishra with How to Learn Flying. and hope you feel better soon, Bishwajit. Yeah.
14: Thank you.
0: All right, and then uh, next, I go to Paul Mitchell Bernstein.
14: Uh, hey, hey, Paul!
0: Yeah, good to see you.
15: Hey, I try to get this light out of the way.
14: <laughs> yeah, um, good yeah to see I was you. just typing
15: uh, a response to. Uh, this is what great poem. It's a nice metaphor. Um. Okay. So, um, well, wow, that it was inspiring um, to hear Carrie Reed and her great. I and Dick. I joke that Dick kind of stole my line because because uh, there was so much uplifting, fun poetry tonight, uh-huh. and uh, <laughs> and mine is not. And I, I felt that immediately when uh, when Carrie was, was doing her great readings about such a dark subject mm-hmm. that she did so beautifully with such nice metaphor and stuff. It was really inspiring.
0: Yeah, it was. And uh, the humor, too, that comes through, is, uh, as some people pointed out in the, in the chat. It was great to see. Yeah, it wasn't dark or, or sad mm-hmm.
15: or gloomy. Or, yeah. It, it yeah. was a lot of yeah. fun. yeah um it was interesting okay so i wrote uh first i wrote a poem i thought it was like just a how-to list Mm -hmm. so i wrote this poem and going back to Carrie for a second i i am about making stuff up and this question came up earlier before in somewhere else uh um yeah so i wrote this menacing day this terrible day it's completely made up uh uh full disclosure um yeah it didn't happen to me i was actually the guy in the house that got busted into
0: uh-huh. Um, well, so that's good to hear. It. I'm glad if it's bad that it didn't happen to you at least. It was just kind of yeah
15: a wild day, but um, but then I realized that the, that it was uh, supposed to be something that I didn't know how to do. Um, so I wrote this poem. How <laughs> to write a qualifying poem? <laughs> Interesting. Uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, which is kind of a play on on you know getting a poem published is what immediately jumped in my mind. But it's inspired by a few things. I have this friend of mine who qualifies everything they say, and it drives me crazy. Like they'll even say things like. I'm thinking about considering doing this and I just like <laughs> want to grab them and, yeah. <laughs> and strangle them. So, uh-huh. uh, yeah. And then when thinking about what to write, uh, I decided to just write what was immediately right around me, you know, so often I write about memories or I write about concerts, things like this. So I decided to just look around and listen around and, uh, write about what was around me. So mm-hmm. this is how to write a qualifying poem. I should write about windows, walls, diffused light and lonely doors. I should write about what's scattered, clothes on the floor, papers and cups and who knows what. I should write about caring, about giving a fuck. I should write about other people, how they move and how they laugh, how they live normal-like, frantic and fast. I should write about gravity, the way the the ground rolls. I should write about anger and illness and healing and the crisis of the soul. It's everywhere. Insanity. Beyond these walls, these floors and doors, the streets are a rage of madness, thugs and whores, gunshots and a man screams angrily, a woman laughs loudly, a car horn taps. Maybe I should write about that. Chaos diffused like the light. Maybe I'll write about night. Beyond this window, brakes scream, engines squeal, rubber burns, smells like people like fear and frustration, but we go on. I should write about going on. I should write about fortitude, failure, and cigarettes, the internet, and the crisis of identity. It's everywhere, disharmony. Or maybe I should write about music, and I definitely might write about love. Then again, I might write about winter instead. We'll see what comes. Maybe I'll write about Tchaikovsky, maybe autumn or Camus, the fall, or maybe I'll just write
0: about nothing at all. Yeah, that's great. I love the, the performance of that, too, and the uh, the way the rhymes pull through. But how to write a qualifying poem. Thanks for sharing that, Paul. Yeah, thanks. Yep. Take thanks. care. It's Paul Mitchell Bernstein with How to Write a Qualifying Poem. I think we've got two more poets left. Uh, Brent Stoffer is here. Hey, Brent.
16: Hey, Jim.
0: Yeah, great to great to have you.
16: Yeah, yeah, it's good to be here. It's been a it's been a um a really great night. I um uh have really really enjoyed uh, uh all of it. I um um didn't uh Tchaikovsky doesn't enter my poem. Uh-huh. As Paul mentioned, but Rachmaninoff does. That's ah, pretty close.
0: Interesting, okay. Got a lot of themes going on. Everybody's on the similar wavelengths, yeah. I think today. <laughs>
16: Yeah, well, I, I chose uh, something that I would very much like to be able to do, but have not even the slightest clue, and it seems to me something like magic when somebody does. Mm-hmm. And and uh, that is playing uh, the piano. And especially playing the piano the way that Mim Lim does. Uh-huh. He is uh, a 19-year-old, he might be 20 now, but... He was, he, he's very young, uh, South Korean guy mm-hmm. who, um, won the Van Cliburn, Van Cliburn, uh, competition last year. It's the youngest guy to ever do it. And, um, so, uh, that's, that's what I landed on for, for the how to put on. Yeah. Very cool.
0: Well, that's definitely something i am gonna be looking up after the show is, uh, some performances by Yunshan
16: Lim. That's going to be great. Yeah, yeah. He's the the one where he won is on YouTube. It's got like thirteen million views.
0: Oh wow. Well I'm definitely looking it up. I can't play it
16: because really of the good. copyright stuff. Yeah.
0: <laughs> but I totally would. Otherwise yeah. I'm I'm really curious. <laughs> oh, let's yeah. hear
16: let's hear the cool. poem. Okay. Um how to play piano like Young Chin Lin. Stitch your finger bones together with lightning bolts. Learn to breathe like spring unfolds over Bukhansan Mountain. Let your brain be a divided country where peace breaks out for a thousand years. Have Chopin and Liszt over for milk and curry rice. Do it every morning. Rachmaninoff arrives unannounced in the middle of the night, knocking paintings off the wall and tracking snow through your mother's living room. Remember, when your hands are poised above the silent keys, all eyes fixed on your slight frame, we're all on Carl Sagan's pale blue dot. Then let the notes flow as the great Han River yearns for the Yellow Sea.
0: Oh, that's great. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. How to play piano like Yun
16: Shen Lim. And do you play at all? Yeah, I, I mean, I can play... I, and The way I usually put it is, I can play keyboards uh-huh. a little bit, yeah, but I can't really play piano. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> I can, yeah. I can, I can do open fifths with my left hand and play chords with my right hand mm-hmm. and do little improv-y stuff. Well, that counts to um, me,
0: but yeah, but, I mean, but <laughs> yeah. yeah, I like yeah. for guitar. <laughs> I I really wish I could play without thinking. I think it feels like there's a step where you could like not have to think about what you're doing. And I can never get to that phase, you know, like where it's like you're thinking more about yeah. other stuff than, than actually what your what progression is next and things.
16: <clears throat> yeah, that's that's the dream. For yeah. Sure. Yeah, for sure. Yeah.
0: Well, anyway, Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Brad. That was great. Okay. I'm definitely going to look that up, too. I, yeah. want, to, I want to hear it.
16: <laughs> it is great. He's he's really he's a phenom. He's remarkable. It's uh, it's great. He's okay. really I can't remember. I cannot recommend him highly enough.
2: So. Yeah.
0: Well, definitely check it out right after yeah. the show. Thanks, Brent. Okay, <laughs> thanks. See you. Yeah, rest offer with how to play piano like Yunshan Lim. And I think, uh, let's see, who do we have left? We have Lucy Chow, last but not least. Hey, Lucy, are you there? Hi. Hi, yeah, Hi, thanks Jim. so much. Good to see you. It's been a bit. It's been a few episodes you haven't been able to join us, so it's great to have you back.
17: Yeah, actually, there was something wrong with the Zoom meeting. I don't know what happened, but oh, really? today I was lucky and I got in. Yeah, right.
0: Ah. Well, that's great. So, what do you have to share?
17: I've got a prompt poem that's also a sonnet. Uh So it got a simple title, um, How to Wonder. But um, it's something that we think we can do. But when we are confronted with something that's really startling and unsettling in life, Hmm. um, we have this feeling that we don't really know how to wonder. So this poem tries to speak to that. Oh, that's great. Looking forward to hearing. Go ahead. How to wonder? Today's chilly azure is free of haze. Gaze into curled apple twigs, denuded by last weekend's stiff bluster and snow blitz, to find March in late November budded. Wonder what signal the blooms sing back to? What roller coaster of cold and warmth, dark storm and light-hearted days, chiaroscuro is it no sigil nor sign, but a quirk of the blithe hearted tree yearning to be happy? How's the queer bloomer wondering about seasons? No impulse towards beauty is untimely, no pink play too daring. Earth, have you entered unknowable now? That small frown, queer smile, wondering how
0: uh great closing couplet on that another sonnet it's like it's been a very sonnety night tonight that's really cool lucy thanks for sharing that
17: thank
0: you tim yep take care yeah good night good night that was lucy chow with how to wonder all right and let me check make sure we've gotten to everybody who is here don't want to miss anybody at all and oh no these are last week okay i got you so we are done okay well thanks everybody great fun night for uh for stuff i was looking at last week's i didn't realize it's the 20th already i'm looking at these poems from like november 13th and and thinking like wait a minute these are all last week's prompt and then i it's already november 20th that's that's amazing all right anyway moving on um so katie dozier is here again hey katie
5: hi wow so many sonnets tonight that i know was it's awesome. like i beg
0: for sonnets for 15 years and finally people are listening
5: <laughs> maybe it's <laughs> maybe it was that they could
0: sense the um <laughs> the uh, how-to poem coming <laughs> into rattle because it really <laughs> is a nice uh, a bonus to be able to publish at least some formal stuff every issue um so for next week's prompt what do you have in mind do you have it written down this time
5: no, you're supposed to write it down. How about this? When we're in the same room, I'll read it off the screen. Yeah, that makes sense,
0: but I, you're supposed to have a document that you put it in. <laughs>
5: that's fair also. that's Okay,
0: fair. So, so next week's this prompt. This a little
5: longer. Okay, yeah. well, next
0: week's prompt. It's not that long. It's uh, right here. It is, write an epistolary poem, which is, a, in other words, a letter, to someone you are thankful for. And that's pretty much, that's all I wrote down. That's how I phrased I thought it, was, it could be as simple as that. Is there anything else you want to add to the uh, concept, Katie?
5: I think that uh, you you guys would think it was very funny if you saw the long-winded sentence <laughs> I sent <it>. him. <laughs> he just masterfully edited it to that prompt. I think that's it. Yeah, I think that there was so much to go on from tonight's interview on directions. You can go on with that. And I'm really interested. I, I'm excited for everybody to explore being thankful this week, too. It seems like a good time to do that. So.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely a good week for thankfulness. And um, and 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 definitely the, the idea of writing a letter to somebody that's public, um, you know, is a really great way to get poetry going and have that intimate feel that that you connect with uh, the person you're writing it to. But then you also connect with the people reading it as well. So it's a nice way to do it. Great Thanksgiving prop. Thanks for setting that up.
5: I should also say bonus points if you manage to share it with the person. Ah, So even if, yeah.
0: (laughs) Very true, too. Or get them to watch the Rattlecast next week. Yeah, that's double
5: bonus points.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. Well, thanks so much, Katie. And, uh, um, yeah, yeah, thanks so much. Uh, Is there anything else to, uh, oh, yeah, that's what I was going to say. I was going to say there's no poetry space this week because the poetry space is 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 on the Thanksgiving hiatus being a Thursday show.
5: Yes. But you can be thankful for all of the episodes being on any streaming service if you have missed them, including the one on Sonnets, which mm-hmm. seems like there might be interest in from tonight's show. Because that was one of my favorite episodes. Yeah, definitely. And a nice
0: open lines last week, open mic, about thankful poems and gratitude. Yeah. So, so a lot of great yeah. stories there, too. Um, it's one of mm-hmm. my mom said she listened twice. So.
5: Oh, that's so sweet. She listened twice. That makes me so happy. My mom's going to catch up. I think she only listened once. Uh oh. Well, she's falling off.
0: You're slacking. mom moms. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, Katie. Good to see you as always.
5: Thank you. Bye. Bye.
0: Yeah, it was uh, our prompt poems editor, Katie Dozier. And uh, so we'll close up with a saiku for this week. And I don't even remember what I wrote the saiku about. Let me see. So this is from the Cornell Chronicle apparently and I have to like look at it to to even like see what was I it was a couple of days ago. Um let's see. So this was the article. Um let me shrink it enough so you can actually see it. <clears throat> keep going, keep going, keep going. Okay. So with unprecedented so or unprecedented flares, stellar corpse show signs of life. And there were these really strange um Um, astronomical phenomena that have been logged for the first time where like this this star that like blew up in the supernova kind of like blew up again and no one really knows why they call it a stellar corpse at another point they call it a zombie star Um, but it like blew up and then maybe it was like being swallowed by a hole which had some kind of flare from swallowing up the dust of the supernova that like happened like there happened to be a black hole close enough or something i don't know but they call it a luminous fast blue optical transient an elf bot, <laughs> and uh, so that was what the um, article was about. I just thought it was interesting. They have this um, artist rendition of it here on the screen, if you're watching. A two two o two two TSD for those keeping track at home. And so here is my Psyku based on that, <clears throat> right here. Zombie star, every planet without you. Zombie Star, Every Planet Without You. That is my Saiku for the week, and that is the show for the week. Thanks, everybody, for joining me. Really interesting episode, talking to Carrie Scheipers about her book Griefland. Very moving but funny at the same time, as many people have pointed out. And uh, also those really interesting corporate... Um, corporate culture poems too really fun talking to Carrie about all that next week on the Rattlecast we're going to be talking to Joshua Mensch in his book Because another difficult subject matter Um, it's a book it's a lyric memoir about um, sexual molestation um but it's a beautiful book and a wonderful poet. He's also the founding editor of Body Literature, which is one of my favorite online, uh, you know, poetry and literature publications. But he's a poet who lives. He's a Canadian, but he lives in the Czech Republic. So we're moving up the time eight hours to accommodate, so he doesn't have to stay up till like two in the morning to join. Uh, so that's going to be noon Eastern time for next week's, 9 a.m. Pacific. So I'm going to wake up right right away, get some coffee, and then pop on the Rattlecast. That is going to be Rattlecast number 221, uh, Joshua Mensch. And the prompt, once again, was to write an epistolary poem uh, to someone you are thankful for. So that is uh, the prompt in the show. Uh, Monday, November 27th, early, eight hours early, noon Eastern time, 9 a.m. Pacific. Hope to see you then. Hope you have a great week in the meantime, and I'll talk to you later. Have a great Thanksgiving, too. Oh, I should say we're going to have the Critique of the Week anyway, even though it's you know Thanksgiving weekend. I don't care. I'm still going to be here. So let's do uh, Critique of the Week anyway on Friday. But hope you have a great Thanksgiving for those in the states celebrating. Uh, for those overseas, have a great week, and I'll talk to you later. Good night.